Well, good morning. I'm going to open up to Exodus chapter 5. When I was a child, I was mesmerized by a movie called The Ten Commandments. Uh, and I knew at the time, even as a child, it was an old movie, um, the one with Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. Um, it, was, it was made back in 1956. Um, but even as I was watching this as a child, like late 80s, um, I remember like, just being mesmerized by like, the special effects of this movie. Um, and they, they tell the Exodus story, and if you've seen it, um, you, you know like, there's, there's some special effects, like the burning bush, that are just kind of cheesy. But then there's other things they do with like, the plagues and like, the crossing of the Red Sea, where God parts the Red Sea. And I remember as a child, that just like, blew my mind. Like, how did they pull this off? How did they do this? And there's these images from that old movie that are like stuck in my mind. Like Charlton Heston and his, you know, the gray hair and beard, wind blowing his face as he like opens up the, the Red Sea. Um, but it, it's interesting how that movie um, shaped uh, like my picture of what this Exodus story in Scripture is. Like, like to this day, it's hard for me to separate the images of that movie from reading Exodus. And you might have some of that too. Um, when you think of Exodus, you think of the big miracles. You think of the, the mighty hand of God that intervenes for his people to be freed from the Egyptians. So you think of things like you know, the plagues that hit, hit Egypt. You think of the, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the cloud by day, the fire by night, um, the, the manna and quail, all of these things. Like Exodus has more miracles than any other book in the Old Testament. Um, but we often forget what happens before the miracle. Like when this salvation story starts to unfold and Moses shows up, it, it doesn't start off with miracles. And, and in fact, what it starts off with is like a huge setback in opposition. And the passage that we're at today is before the miracles, and it's, we, we get to see this setback and this opposition and it's a very ordinary, mundane passage, and it's kind of depressing. And I, I want to bring that up because so often we, we think of all the miraculous things that God does, but in this passage we see that God starts to do something inside of his people in the very mundane disappointments of life uh, that I think is preparing them to be a certain kind of people. And I wonder like, how I would respond to something like this in this story. Because like, we're looking at this from like, our point in history where we know how the story ends, but if you're in this story and you face like, the setback and the opposition that they face, I, I wonder with the uncertainty of the future how I would respond if I was the Israelite. Like, what would I do in the midst of this terrible disappointment? Because I, I know I'm not like, a person that is, like, like, has a ton of like, endurance and perseverance. Like, I am a weak, like, I just, I, I wither, like, in the face of, of this. And, and, and you, you, we get, but we get to see what God's doing in the midst of them in the story. So the story is in Exodus 5. And like, leading up to this, Moses has been living kind of like an exile for 40 years. God appears to him in the burning bush, tells him, he's heard the cry of his people, go back to Egypt, um, and, and you're going to be a part of, like, this salvation story. Moses shows up with Aaron, his brother, they meet with the elders of the Israelites, and they're going into this meeting with Pharaoh with their plan of how they're going to leave. So this uh, verse 1, Exodus 5, says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Let my people go. We know that, like, this famous line, let my people go. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses shows up, says, hey, this is what uh, the God has told us, that we're going to go out to the wilderness. And uh, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not on board with that. No way. Verse 3, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go, let us go three day, onto a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And the Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So they're like, we're going out, we've been called to go out to the wilderness for this religious festival. And what Pharaoh's thinking is, you guys just want to get out of work, and you want to go to like the Burning Man conference. Like, you guys just want to go to like Burning Man festival. You guys just want to go out and party. We're not going to let that happen. Get back to work. And so the story continues. That same day, Pharaoh, he, he takes it to the next level. He says, commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw for their bricks to make their bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they make in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Another translation says, for they are lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go out to the offer sacrifices to our God, but let heavier work be laid on them that they may labor at it and pay no regard to the lying work. So he's, he's saying, not only are you not allowed to do this, but I'm going to actually make your work more difficult. We're taking away the straw that you're using to build these bricks, but you still have the same brick quota that you have to hit every single day as a slave. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will give you, not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Now they're scrambling. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work and daily tasks as when there, when there was straw. And the foremen of, of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten because of this. They were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all the tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Like, this is like escalating pretty quick. It goes from just Pharaoh saying no to them to like him imposing these new laws increasing their work, and now these people that are in charge are being beaten. Verse 15, the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, or you are lazy. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go sacrifice to our Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. And the foreman, the people of Israel, saw that they were in trouble when he said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So like they come out of this meeting, and Moses and Aaron are out there like, so how did it go? And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, what have you guys done? You have taken our situation 
And it's gone from bad to worse. Like for how, how terrible life has been as slaves, you have just made it so much worse for us. And they said, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses realizes what's happening. It says, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered the people at all. So this is kind of a, it's a tough story. Like this is before all the miracles. This is what they're up against. They, they're, they're, they're excited with this news. Like Moses shows up with Aaron and he says, hey, God gave me a vision. We're going we're gonna to be liberated. We're going to be set free. We're, like these people who've ruled over us for 400 years, God's going to do something about it. And there's enthusiasm. But the very first opportunity they have, the next step that they take, they see the force and the power of Pharaoh and this system. And it makes their lives worse than where they were before they got their hopes up. This is a story of, it, it just kind of leads them into this, this darkness. And again, I wonder, how would I react? Without knowing how this story is going to end, without knowing what tomorrow holds, when you run into that opposition and that setback, what do you do? What do you do? Uh, what we find here is there's some things that we learn about Moses and the people of God um, that is important for us in our own journey. Because it, it, what you'll see in this story and really throughout Scripture is that God does his most meaningful work through disappointment in life. God does some of his most meaningful work through when we, when we ha have these high hopes and we just get let down and we're devastated. And if we pay attention in those moments, we have some different options. We can run, we can be angry, or we can lean into what God's doing. And the way that the story starts, it's this reminder that we're called to serve the Lord. So like as, as, as Moses shows up with this appeal to God, the first thing he, he's saying is like, we want, we want to go out through the wilderness so that we can serve God, that we can worship God, that we can sacrifice to him. And throughout the Exodus story, this serving God is a huge theme. That the people of God who are enslaved to Pharaoh and serve Pharaoh, there's, like Moses is calling them back to, to serve God. So service and slavery and worship are all very, like, in English that's how it's translated, but it's all similar words in Hebrew. We worship God on like a Sunday morning. Like we come here, we sing songs, there's a liturgy, there's a rhythm to this where it points us back to like God's presence being the center of our lives. But like we know that worship's more than that. Like this is good. This is corporate worship that drives us back to the presence of God. But really, worship is a lifestyle. Like how we live our lives throughout the week is an act of worship to God. Um, and when we do that, what we find is that we like we. It's like Augustine's old line: like our hearts are unsettled until they rest in Thee, our Creator. And that's where like life is experienced in this presence of God. But we also, like, if, if, you're, if you're human, you, you worship something. You worship something. Like, even if you don't believe in God, you worship something. And, and it plays out in all sorts of different ways. Like, when you think of, like, idols. Like, idols are things that, that we find our value in, that consume us, that we put, like, our self-worth in. Um, val like, we, like, values are, or idols are things that we get, we get super caught up in. 
and all of our worship goes to the idol. So like, kind of like an innocent idol in my life. Like I've got really bad idols, but one that is like an innocent idol that I share all the time that I know is unhealthy is me being a Suns fan. Like I have propped the Suns up on this pedestal and they consume my time, my thoughts, my emotions. Like I've been so concerned about who they hired this last week. Like I've been watching, like, you know, worrying about who this next hire is going to be. When they lose, I'm like devastated and shouldn't be. They control my emotions way too much. I've come up with all sorts of like excuses for why they lose. If somebody like uh, says something like last week when Simon said, uh, Pastor Simon said that Suns stands for see you next season, I turn into like um, I turn into like a musketeer. Like I have to defend the honor of the Suns. Like we we have certain idols in our lives that that just capture our hearts, and some of them are kind of like fun and innocent, and then other ones are are things that just consume our identity and our self-worth, and all of our worship goes into that. And those types of things always leave us exhausted, weary, disappointed. Uh, we, we have systems that we worship or ideologies that we worship that we find our identity in, and, and everything about like this system, like even for these people, they're, they're enslaved to, the, to Pharaoh, and they're, they're slaves to him, but they also are serving him, and there's something about like they're, they're caught up in this system that it's so hard for them to imagine a different reality because they're so caught up in the system. You, maybe you worship self. This is probably the biggest thing is we worship, I worship me. Like I'm, I'm the center of all the stories. Like life is all about me and it's all about what I get and my agenda. Like that, especially in our culture, that's, that's very individualistic. We worship, we worship self. It's all about us. And what happens is when we place our worship outside of God, all of these different things that we worship leave us weary and withering and lead us to, to death. And if there's anything that's happening here in the story of Exodus is that Moses is redirecting worship and service and sacrifice back to the source of life, which is God. And for them, they're caught up in the system and he's pulling them out of the system that they're serving into this new reality of, of God. He's calling them out of the system. He's redirecting their worship, and, and, and what this passage does is it calls our loyalty into question. Who is in control? Where do we place our trust? Where do we place our hope? Who is our Savior? We're called to serve the Lord, but not just that. We're called to serve the Lord in the face of setback and opposition, not just when things are easy, not just when things are convenient, but in the midst of the setbacks and the opposition. Because they run into huge opposition here. Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. In fact, get to work, and I'm going to increase your labor. It says, he says, no, he punishes them with more work. They have to build bricks without straw. Calls them lazy as like a propaganda to enforce these new rules. Um, the foremen, the guys in charge, are beaten physically. Elders are mad at Moses. Moses questions God. These trials, they, they come. Like, they, they go from enthusiasm to thinking, oh, God's going to do something, to the very next step, they go from bad to worse. A couple things about this setback in opposition. For them, um, it's caught up in two things. Like, sometimes we face opposition and setbacks in life that are outside of our control. And other times, uh, th there's things that we should just know better and we get caught up in. 
And the two things in this story are false expectations and selective listening. False expectations and selective listening. And I have found that these two things in, in my relationship with God keep, like when I run into like setbacks and opposition, it's usually because of these two things. Um, so false expectations and listening for the people of God. The people of God who are in slavery, Moses comes, they get excited, and the very first thing that happens is Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. The thing is, they should have known that this was about to happen. Because in the end of chapter 4, it tells us that Moses tells the elders of the people of Israel all the things of what to expect. And included in that, if you've been reading through this story, you see in Exodus 3.9, God and Moses are speaking, and this is what God says, I know the king of Egypt, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Like he tells them that, Pharaoh's not going to let you go. Get ready for this. Like you're not just going to walk in and be like, hey, we're leaving, and he's like, okay, 400 years is, yeah, that's probably enough. You guys have paid your dues. You can go. Like that's not what happens. He's, God says, Pharaoh's not going to, this is not going to be easy. And then in Exodus 4, verse 21, it says, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let people go. Like, what did they think hardening Pharaoh's heart would mean? Like, they, 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 they're really excited about the good news that they're going to be set free, and they forget these warnings that God says, this is not going to be an easy task. This is going to be extremely difficult. It's going to require incredible courage and perseverance and character. And the first thing that happens is they go in, and Pharaoh does exactly what God told them they're going to do, and the whole thing feels like it starts to fall apart. How could God let this happen? Oh my goodness, this is, this, is, this is miserable. Take us back to last week before we had to do this extra work with no straw for our bricks. Like they have these expectations that it's all going to be like all hunky-dory once God intervenes. But God says this isn't going to be easy. Then we see with Moses, like we start to see some of Moses' stubbornness. Like I think this is what made him such a great leader, but also he just like does things his own way. As he goes in to speak with Pharaoh, he takes the wrong delegation with him. Like God tells him, take the elders of Israel with you. He only takes Aaron. He adopts the wrong kind of approach and the wrong kind of terminology when he goes in to talk to Pharaoh. God says, use like this language, and he uses this other language that probably triggers Pharaoh, that is a part of why Pharaoh doesn't let him go. And then he makes the wrong request. God says, go in and just say, you're, you're, we, we want to bring everyone out for, to worship. And he has this other request. And you see, like, he keeps doing, like, he does things differently. He, like, he's like, I, I don't know if Moses just thinks he knows better than God or he's taking things into his own hands or what's going on here. But he, he goes off the path of what God has told him to do. And it's almost like the, the selective listening of, like, the word of God comes to him and says, do this. And he goes, yeah, I'll kind of do that. And he goes and does this other thing. There's this selective listening. There's these false expectations. And sure enough, opposition setbacks hit, and they feel miserable. And now they're making bricks without straw, and they're incredibly frustrated. What is going on here? Like, if God has this plan to set them free, like, what, why does he allow them in, this, in the midst of this to just 
fit in this opposition and setback? What is going on here? Jesus tells a, a parable about faith in the gospel. And this parable is the parable of the sower. I'm sure that you, you've probably heard this about how this, the word of God, the seed that is, is planted. And when he's talking about how this seed comes into our heart, the way that it sticks, he, one of the scenarios he uses is, he says this in Mark chapter 4, 16 and 7, others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. There's an enthusiasm. It's exciting. They're pumped. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. He talks about a certain kind of faith that is exciting and it gives you energy and you're, there's joy, but as soon as opposition comes, as soon as soon as persecution, as soon as hard times come, it just withers because there's no root. There's no depth to it. And what I have found is like when we go through these seasons of opposition, we go through these seasons where we are disappointed, God is actually deepening something inside of us if we pay attention to what he's up to. That he is at work in ways that we cannot understand. And it's either going to cause that faith to wither completely, or it's going to deepen our capacity for hard times and suffering and walking alongside other people in a world that is really difficult to live in. And what we see here is there's this deepening. I think God is trying to deepen the faith of his people. He says, I'm going to get you out of here, but it is not going to be easy. Get ready. It's going to be difficult. And yet there's going to be a, a strengthened spirit within you. Conversion. A human being, so there's this divine word that comes into their life, and that their reception of that word would be tested by suffering. That the reception of, their, of, of, of God coming into their life, now that the faith that they have is tested by suffering. Like, we tend to think that hard times and suffering is like, oh man, we have to go in the other direction. Like, I, I don't like pain. I don't like going through dif- difficult things. So I just go in the other direction and like, but this, the way that the economy of the kingdom works is embrace it. Like God is doing something through the midst of an incredibly difficult circumstances where you might be suffering. It doesn't minimize the suffering or the pain, but it means that God is with you in the midst of it, strengthening something inside of you. Peter instructs us when he talks about don't be, uh, to not think that trials are strange. To not think that they're strange. Um, but it, the element is normal experience. Our calling is to be made like our Savior in his suffering. We follow the Savior who suffers. And the Savior who, who gives us life through his suffering. Like this is this, this mystery of how this gospel message works. Life comes from death. Life that is eternal comes from sacrifice. James, the brother of Jesus, has these words. Where he says, consider it pure joy when you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, because they are a part of like maturing our faith. To consider it joy when we go through setbacks and hardship and opposition, because it's actually strengthening something in us. Alec Motyer, who wrote a commentary on uh, Exodus, it's a great commentary, you can get it on Kindle, very easy to read. Um, the message of Exodus says this about them going through this hardship. He says, in 
in the light of even this small selection of Scripture, we see that when the Word of God arrives in our hearts and lives, testings and trials come too as God's appointed way for His children to grow spiritually and to come into the arena of Christ-likeness. That it is through the testings and the trials that your faith is, is proven. That going through those things, that it's deepening something inside of us. And this has been a hard lesson for me to learn because uh, oftentimes what happens is, I, I've been told this by a counselor, that I have unrealistic, op, I'm, I'm unrealistically optimistic about outcomes in life. And you might look at Jared and say, I don't think you're a very optimistic person. You're not really like flowing with positivity, Jared. I'm like, I know, I know, I'm not. I'm actually quite cynical, and yet I'm, but I am very unrealistically optimistic about outcomes. I just, I think things are going to always go great and go smoothly, even in my cynicism. And so what happens is like, I feel like God lays something on my heart. It's this vision. It's going to be exciting. I go and share it with people. I'm like, oh man, everyone's going to jump on board and everyone's going to be, going to just think this is great. They're all going to get on board with my agenda. And then it's like, they're like looking at me like Pharaoh. They're like, I don't want to do that. No way. That's not going to work. Like, why would you? So like, like as a pastor and church planner, like I'm going to plant a church and like thousands of people are going to jump in. It's going to be so amazing. And it's going to like transform the city. And then like, it doesn't happen that way. And I'm like left devastated. And I'm like, God, like, why would you do this to me? You know, like, and it's like, you can hear God saying, well, you've got selective hearing, you've got unrealistic, you know, expectations. And, and so you go through like this, and, 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 and like you're worshiping yourself, like, it, like all of this stuff, and it's like God is saying, no, I'm actually going to deepen something in you through your disappointment because you need maturing. You need maturing. Here's how um, the, God's economy of faith, you, you could say it works like this. Circumstances that turn against us force dependence on him. Maybe you've gone through a season like this. That circumstances that turn against us force dependence on God. And, and what you find is, is this is where true life is found in complete surrender and dependency on God. This is where, where, where true life is found. Um, circumstances that force dependence teach us patience. So we go through these seasons of setbacks and opposition that are confusing and hard to understand, but it creates this dependence on our true source of life, which is God. And, and it also teaches us patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience is evidence of God's presence in your life. And I would say patience is, is incredibly underrated and countercultural. Like, we are not patient people. And yet, patience is this fruit of the Spirit. And circumstances that teach us patience make us wise. Circumstances that teach us patience make us wise. This is where wisdom comes. When we go through setbacks and opposition, we find that we're desperate for God, and God does something. He moves inside of our lives, and it's not just that he gives us like head knowledge. He expands our capacity. He expands our maturity. He expands our wisdom, and we, we have this perspective that is now, that, that, that is aligned with what God is doing in this world, and not just like like my, my agenda for my own life or all these different idols that I worship, like there's some bigger story now that I'm a part of. And when you hang out with 
with people that are a bit older who have abided in Christ through life's ups and downs, what you find is this incredible capacity to just absorb the difficulties of life with grace and wisdom. And they walk alongside people as well who are going through it, and they say, here is how we navigate this. There's actually a deepening of our faith. There's roots that take place when we go through this setback in opposition. So we are called to serve God in the midst of those setbacks. And we're called to serve the Lord in the face of the setbacks and opposition, opposition because he is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his promises. You never want to like hear this when you're in the midst of the setbacks and opposition because it's difficult. And this doesn't mean that we have like this Pollyanna view of life. It doesn't take away or diminish the difficulties we go through. And yet there's, there's something about the promises of God. We see that throughout Scripture, and you see that here. Because Moses cries out to God, and he says, we have gone from bad to worse. This has not gone as planned, as I thought it was going to go as planned. The people are mad at me. Like, God, why did you choose me? Why am I in this situation? And here's how the Lord responds in Exodus 6. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. We're called to serve and worship Lord in the face of setbacks and opposition because he is faithful to his promises. And like what we're about to see in this story is God's faithfulness and compassion and his mighty outstretched hand that frees these people from the yoke of slavery with the Egyptians. And the miracles start coming where God just sets these people free. And in this story, we see the mundane disappointments of life. And I wonder, what, how would we respond if we're the Israelites? One of the things is we have to answer that today. Wherever we are in life, my guess is that it's not easy. My guess is you've experienced difficulties and setbacks and opposition. You might be going through something like me, really disappointed the Suns lost in the playoffs. Or it might be something incredibly heavy, and the weight of that feels like it's too heavy to bear. And you're like, where is God in all this? Like, where is this heading? Why is this so uncertain and confusing? And my hope today is that God would meet you in this place. Say, I didn't say it was going to be easy, but I'm going to be with you through it. And his promises are true. We see that in the story. We're going to close today with a time of communion. And I want to read a passage that maybe isn't always read with communion, but I think it communicates like this life that we experience, this life that is eternal. We catch glimpses of that now, this life that we're invited into now, into eternity in our relationship with God. It comes from his death and sacrifice. It comes from God coming to earth, 
physically breaking his body open and pouring his blood out that we may have life. And as we come to the communion table, we're reminded of how that sacrifice brings us life. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Today as we close our time together, with whatever you're carrying, with whatever you're experiencing, we invite you to the table. And this God who is present in this place wants to give you life. We take the bread and we remember the life that Jesus lived and the death on the cross. We take the cup and we remember the blood that was poured out and shed for our sin. And we remember that this, that, that this is where life comes from. And my hope today is that Christ would just breathe life into you today. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us, for your word, for this old story, Lord, this ancient story. Yet we see the human experience. These people who are crying out to you, who are given good news and are hopeful. And yet run into Pharaoh, who says no, who makes their life miserable. We know life is full of setbacks and disappointments. Life is relentless. But in the midst of that, Lord, we want to worship you. For you are where our hope lies. That what we see and what we experience is not the end of the story but all of this is heading somewhere. We ask that you would meet us today, Lord, and strengthen us, that you would deepen our roots, that you would expand our capacity, that you'd make us wise. We give you this time, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.